This is the podcast by the Straits Times. So, I mean, we're here in the middle of Clementi Forest, and as you can hear, it's quite noisy. Not because of traffic, for once. <laughs> Good morning from the Clementi Forest. The Green Pals team is here with our guest, David Tan, on January 29th. I'm literally five minutes away. We had condos, we had busy road, lots of traffic, private houses, but it's all just disappeared now amongst this wall of green with crickets, birds, lots of bird song this morning. Yeah? Straw-headed bubble. Straw-headed calling again. It's a good sign that the straw-headed wobble has established a population here, right? Um, you know, Singapore is, I think, the only place in the world where straw-headed wobbles are easy to spot. In Indonesia, in Thailand, they have been basically poached to oblivion. Mm. And to see one in the wild in those countries is extremely difficult and getting more difficult by the day as well. Hello, I'm David Tan. Uh, I'm an ornithologist, uh, currently a PhD student at the University of New Mexico. So I study birds. And I visited Clementi Forest uh, quite a fair number of times. Um, it's an interesting part of the uh, landscape of Singapore because it is this intermediate forest patch that lies between the Central Catchment Nature Reserve and the Southern Ridges. And so it seems that this patch of forest is a connector, right, that links up these forest patches and animals like birds and potentially even civets, uh, tree shrews potentially, although we haven't really modelled this, but it seems that this might be a, a connector that links up, that allows animals like these to... Oh, hello. Sorry, woodpecker. <laughs> She's not a kid. Right. Uh, allows animals like these to travel from one forest patch to the other. But the bird life here is what you'd expect from a young secondary forest, right? It's, we're not looking at dense interior forest species. A lot of the birds here are non-native, like laughing thrush as well. But yet you do see species that are edge tolerant, that are disturbance tolerant, making their way into these forests. I think that's very important because, you know, some of these birds are still native species and their livelihoods and their conservation should also be something that we should be concerned about. I work mostly with disturbed species, being a disturbed person myself, <laughs> uh, and uh, or disturbance tolerant species. So things like the tit babblers, which we haven't heard this morning, I'm not sure why, but they will be here as well. And really, these are the species that give you an indicator as to how the forest is, or the health of the forest is at, at the present time. And it also gives you an indication as to how the forest is regenerating as well. If you start seeing these edge-tolerant species disappear, that's a bad sign. But whereas if you see, you know, the composition slowly changing from edge-tolerant species to more edge-sensitive species or disturbance-sensitive species, then you know that the forest is actually getting better. Welcome to Green Pulse a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyse the beats of the changing environment from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David and I'm the climate change editor at The Straits Times. People have been enraptured by the footage of the Clementi Forest and it later appeared that a neighbouring forest plot in Dover has been zoned for residential use. The authorities have indicated that there is no immediate need to clear both plots of land. But the perennial tussle between development and conservation in Singapore is ongoing. Joining us for our studio discussion today on the importance of Singapore's forest is Ansiva Soti, a biology lecturer at the National University of Singapore. Siva, so you are a veteran in the nature community and maybe you can start by giving our listeners a brief history of forest here in Singapore. We know that a lot of nature here has already been lost as Singapore redevelops, but how much do we have left? 
Well, we've re-examined this question almost every 10 years when we face loss of forest to remind ourselves of a couple of things. The first is that rapid deforestation began with colonization of Singapore and a lot of land was transformed into agriculture. There was plenty of rubber plantations, for example. And then the next round of forest loss was when we went independent. So there was a rapid urbanization and landscape reclamation. So already by the early 1900s, we had lost most of our primeval forests. Uh, today, there was a reassessment in 2011 and primarily lowland uh, forests and freshwater forests stands at 0.28% of land cover. So although Singapore has 56% is vegetated, which is impressive for any city, about a quarter of that is actively managed and there's about quarter to 30% is what we call spontaneous or unmanaged vegetation and the majority of that is secondary forest. So Siva, if they are no longer pristine rainforests, are they still worth protecting? Well, the government zoned areas with a prediction of what they would be used for. So forest that was zoned, say, 30 years ago, uh, now has a chance to grow up and become a refuge for animals that may leave other sites that have become clear. So that's why for every development, there is an EIA to evaluate the situation as it is now. And we saw that for the Ulukandan area, they released, actually released a baseline survey and then asked for feedback about the condition of the forest. So conditions of forest will change every decade. The thing to realize is in Singapore, after independence, all of the land was taken back. So settlements, which were scattered around the country, were all withdrawn, put into HDB. And then this land becomes the property of government, which decides whether to use it for residential, uh, industry, uh, recreation. And so the decisions about how the land is to be used gets delayed when the time for the specific government arises. But does this quest for development clash with Singapore's ambition to become a city in nature where more green is infused into the landscape? David, you recently plotted out a map how Singapore's land use plans will affect forests here. Could you tell us more about your findings? So, I mean, it really depends a lot of this on how you want to define nature in the first place, right? When we're talking about nature, we're talking about just parks alone. Are we talking also about areas of, you know, rainforests that are not necessarily accessible to the public? So places like, you know, forests within military areas, places like Clementi Forest, you know, which large parts of it are not actually accessible because it's so densely vegetated, there's no trails. Same thing with Dover Forest as well, right? No real proper trails that are maintained within these areas. Sort of whatever's in there that's natural or nature it's not actually sort of public facing. When we talk about the city nature, we have to think quite carefully about what this actually means when we talk about, when we use this term. And so when I looked at what the 2019 master plan was for Singapore, which zones out how certain parts of Singapore are going to be used in about five to 10 years time, I found that a lot of areas that are forested presently are zoned for land use change, whether it's returning to residential areas, like with Clementi Forest and Dover Forest, or perhaps even to conversion to industrial use as well. So we've seen this happen in real time with Tengah Forest. Right? Tengah Forest was formerly Kampong, and then it was allowed to grow feral uh, and regenerate it into some kind of young secondary forest. And then right now it's in the process of being cleared away for residential and other users as well. Now, I think the bigger question we have to think about is 
when we talk about being a city in nature, and I think this is a, a bigger picture issue, it's that how do we address how nature functions? When we say a city in nature, we have to also bear in mind that nature has some kind of functional value to it, not just for us, but also for nature in and of itself. So animal populations, how are they served by the existing amount of greenery that we have? And will developments in clearance of forest degrade the ability of our natural landscapes to provide these services both for us and for wildlife as well? Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series Green Pulse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating. So on that note, I just wanted to find out from the both of you whether you guys can give Singaporeans a kind of idea about what kind of life we have in our forest. Well, I think if you're going back into the forest, the first thing you're going to appreciate is the ambience and the space. And then you begin to notice the animals that are less disturbed by human presence. And we actually have quite a number of fairly large adaptable species that you will see. Monitor lizards and hornbills, pink-neck green pigeons, a whole array of butterflies, dragonflies. So these are the obvious first creatures you're going to see. Surprisingly, you know, when I ask people, they haven't seen things which might be in the sky above us at that point of time. So that sensitization is they go and get familiar. They start seeing more and more things. But you must realize that a lot of wild animals will avoid people. So they begin to see our patterns of presence, uh, peak hours and weekends. And that will be the time when they actually move away. So it becomes very hard to see. So visitors who are there off peak, who sit down and spend a lot of time watching, they will tend to come across a lot more. So you'll notice there are a lot of bird watchers with very long camera lens and they sit positioned around one anymore. And as they stay put, they are the ones that get to see quite a number of things. So, you know, when otters were first spotted in Singapore in, in the 90s, right? It was a bird watcher who brought the report because he was staying absolutely still and he was alone. And then they begin to see the life that passes them. But still, if you look at Facebook groups, people are seeing wild pigs, uh, mouse deer. Pangolins, unfortunately, they are seeing them because they are coming out of the forest. And so there is quite a lot of diversity. Oh, the one thing that people regularly see at mangroves will be snakes, crocodiles, of course, a lot of shorebirds and terrestrial birds. Uh, so there's plenty to enthrall the visitor. But of course, other than being treasure troves of wildlife, forests are also good for many other things, such as soaking up planet warming carbon dioxide, reducing urban temperatures, for example, you know, lowering the urban heat island effect. There's a term for this, of course, which is ecosystem services. So, David, perhaps you can explain to us what this term really means in the Singapore context. Right. So, I mean, ecosystem services is still a, sort of a work in progress. We're still, you know, trying to really explore and to quantify just how forests in particular, and even mangroves as well, function to help human populations. And I think you've highlighted some of the more salient ideas, which is that climate control is one big question. The cooling effect of forests is very important. But I think one thing that really we undervalue is also the ability of forests to soak up excess rainwater. When you have a concretized surface, it's much more prone to runoff on the surface. And that leads to accumulation of water above the ground. And that, of course, sometimes leads to flooding. And so having these patches of wooded areas actually serves to soak up excess rainfall. And this also helps then to prevent water accumulation in lowland areas, also known as flooding. And I think aside from that, obviously, there's the carbon benefits. But of course, the counter argument to that is that Singapore is very small. I mean, we're not going to make a big dent in terms of carbon capture on the global scale. 
But then bearing in mind that we have to consider our moral responsibility on a per capita scale in terms of how much carbon we emit and how much carbon we sequester as well. And that's something really we should be thinking about from a sustainability perspective in the long run too. You also have to consider sort of the medium and long-term consequences as well. So one of the things immediately after forest clearance that you observe that many people who live near places with forests that were recently cleared have observed is that wildlife immediately gets displaced out. So I've spoken to people who live near Bukit Batok and Jurong where there were some forests nearby. And then once that was cleared, they saw monitor lizards wandering out, wild boars wandering out as well of these areas because they're being displaced by habitat clearance. And that presents opportunities for potential conflict with humans as well. But of course, then in the much longer term, right, not only do we see increased likelihood of roadkill, but that points to the larger problem of what we call edge effects. When you create more forest edge, then all of a sudden your impacts of the urban areas seep into that edge as well. And it really does create sort of a dead zone where there's less wildlife that's very close to the outside. Not only do you have roads, but then roads bring with it noise pollution, and then your streetlights bring with it light pollution as well. And that will have an effect on wildlife communities within those areas. So the impacts of deforestation on biodiversity, whether in terms of roadkill, loss of habitats, loss of ecosystem services, you know, like David, what you said about how forests can prevent flooding. These are all really good reasons for why we should preserve forests. But we can't talk about conservation without talking about the reason why they were cleared in the first place. And in Singapore, we've always heard about the refrain about how we are land scarce and how we need the land to develop. So it's probably too much to go into detail in one podcast, but maybe we can just have a bit more forward-looking discussion about this. Is it ever possible to strike a balance between the two? Okay, so when you talk about balance, you have to talk about all the demands of an urban population. You know, we need a place to live, then you need a place to go to work, and we need a place for recreation. So those are just a few of our needs, right? Then you need uh, places to train to provide security, then you need transport to get from one place to another. So you start to see a number of factors uh, pile up. A single human individual has quite a big footprint. And a remark the Minister of National Development made recently is the fact that our households are changing, right? From multiple member household, now you might be scattered across two or three households. So that creates also a residential demand. And so this balancing act is done by government. And then each sector will make its advocacy. So for the nature groups, maybe I should clarify, the nature groups, there are several elements. There's a core element that has started to be engaged with government quite intensively only in the past decade. So what they try to do is, all right, there's a development going on. How do we minimize impact, maximize the forest that can be left behind for refuge, and heighten the connectivity of a patch? And if weather disturbance can be calibrated by the kind of separate works which are going on at the same time. So this is an approach which is done in private with an increasing number of development projects. Then on the outskirts, people who are familiar with the forest near their home and then ask why does this have to go? So there are different elements. For the people who ask why the forests have to go, there's also the people who are asking, uh, I want a place to live. And then there are all these other needs. So that's the job of government to try to figure out their balancing act. And then amongst the people who are concerned for the environment, try to be able to contribute in ways that say, let's minimize impact. Let's think about our choices. Do we really need to do this now? And there are rare cases in which there's been persuasion to reconsider sites. And also to highlight and make this bigger discussion, which is going on now 
with the Dover Forest at Ulu Pandan, right? And even the MP is bringing it up in Parliament. So 20 years ago, we would not have imagined that residents of an area would lobby their MP to ask questions about the development. So that's quite a new thing that has happened. So finding the balance, the nature people might be willing to give up quite a lot of things. You know, stay in a small place, don't buy a big car, create less trash. But is the rest of the population ready and available? So some groups, what they do is they go into public education to try and realize that in this balancing game, there are things which an individual must be willing to do. I also want to bring up, you know, what Taking Soon, one of the famous architect in Singapore has brought up, which is that, you know, this ideology of land scarcity in Singapore is a fiction. It's about as real as the Malayan, right? And it really is a reflection of how efficiently we're using our land, but also our priorities when it comes to land use, right? So I brought this up a little bit earlier as well, but we're talking about, okay, we, we do need land for residential zoning. Number one, are there areas that are being underutilized right now, right? In terms of, you know, areas that only serve one purpose and could actually be redeveloped to be more high intensity use and to incorporate multiple land use types into a single plot of land as well. And we do see that happening, right? Places like Badok, places like Tampanese, we're starting to see these multi sort of use structures popping up here and there. And so that's, that's really a good sign. But the other thing we have to think about as well is, should we be incorporating the needs of natural spaces into our national priorities as well? And I think the needs of natural spaces don't just, we're not just talking about animals, we're also talking about human needs from natural spaces, right? We've talked about ecosystem services, but there's also you know, a much more broad category as well of the mental health services that nature provides. This has been well documented in the uh, social science literature as well. So I think we have to evolve this discussion. And I think we are slowly seeing this happen, right? The advocacy movement surrounding Dover Forest, surrounding Clementy Woods is a very positive sign. It shows that, you know, as a population, we are starting to mature in terms of our civic discourse about the value of natural areas. And I think that's a very heartening sign to see. It's no longer a niche issue. It's actually a question of much broader public interest. So thank you both for coming on today's episode in talking about forests in Singapore and putting the discussions over Dover and Clementy Forest into perspective about what forests in Singapore mean. So thank you both for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Bye. Well, that's a wrap for Green Pulse and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.